0: Hey everyone, this is Jay,
1: and this is Angie.
0: And welcome to another episode of Cross the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two.
1: Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that, share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place.
0: This week, we're excited to share our third Across the Lines community event with our dear friends at LinkedIn. In partnership with the LinkedIn Asian Alliance, we hosted three of their AAPI leaders to discuss their unique career paths to leadership. In this discussion, you'll hear from Connie Chan-Wang, who's the Senior Director of Global Brand Marketing, Jen Whedon, who's the Vice President of Business Development, and Brian Ormao, who's the Chief of Staff of the Executive Chairman, Jeff Weiner.
1: In this episode, we spoke with our guests about their unique career paths to leadership and their learnings along the way. We touch on how the need for financial security influenced their decisions, having tough conversations with family, and so much more. Jay and I were especially excited about this conversation because it helps widen the narrow range of motion that leaders within our community are typically afforded when it comes to advancing their careers. We hope it inspires you to reflect on and build confidence in your own non-linear path. Hope you enjoy. We're so excited and so honored as Across the Lines to be hosting this. Something that Jay and I have been really thinking about lately is this idea of rewriting the narrative for what it means to be an Asian American professional. And I think all our guests who have joined us on the show, and especially those here on the Zoom with us, they they all embody that to the utmost extent. Jay, do you want to give a, a bit more context too as to why we're especially excited for this event?
0: For sure, and you know when we when Angie and I were planning this with Lindman, uh, we were trying to think through uh, Asian American leaders uh, within LinkedIn that had a unique career path. I think an interesting learning that we all had was that it, it you know it's very difficult for a lot of our leaders, at least that we see today, to have not had an untraditional career path or an unconventional career path. Society molds us to just follow these traditional career paths, and and that's why for us it was really important to highlight. Jen, Jennifer, Jen's story, uh, Brian and Connie's um, uh, experiences to ideally inspire you to think through ways that you can also follow an unconventional, unique career path. I'm really excited to uh, be able to speak with all three of you um, today about this. So, you know, one way that we love to start the podcast, uh, Jen and Brian will be familiar with this, um, is to ask our guest what their favorite dish was growing up. And so we can start off like that as well. Uh, for this um, for this panel. So let's start with Connie. Uh, Connie, what was your favorite dish growing up? And then maybe we can go to Jen and Brian afterwards.
2: I love this question. It's my, the favorite part of your podcast. Uh, I'm a huge foodie, at least I used to be before I had two young children and we can no longer eat in restaurants. Uh, but my favorite dish growing up was dim sum. And the reason I love Dim Sum so much is because my grandmother was the matriarch of our family. She was the single mother of six kids, 18 grandchildren, and I can't keep track how many great-grandchildren now, but every Sunday she would host a family Dim Sum. uh, And it was an incredible time to just be a part of the family, feel the love and the laughter Uh, So dim sum is my favorite. I can't wait to go back and eat it. That's one of the things I miss the most through the pandemic.
3: My favorite food growing up is definitely like a comfort nostalgia food. But my mom, who is a very good cook, um, unlike me, um, she would make uh, Chinese dumplings, steamed dumplings from scratch, and she would serve them um, for Sunday lunch. And um, like, I've never met a dumpling I didn't like across all cultures, honestly, Um, and in my family um, I think which is true for lots of Asian families like food equals love like my parents were not huggy or outwardly emotive or would like not you know say like they loved us but like man like every time I showed up when I came home from college my mom would go into massive cooking mode because like for them food is love and I couldn't get on a plane back to college without her like shoving food in my luggage. Like that that was just how like they shared affection.
0: And Brian, do you want to go next? Yeah, getting some feedback on Brian's end. I don't know if anybody else can hear that.
3: I, I'm hearing feedback too. Like I, I could hear him before and now I just hear the background noise. Yeah, same. Maybe log off and log back in, Brian.
0: The classic. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> it was 99% of the time. <laughs>
0: Um, let's see, let's see how long Brian takes to come, come um, maybe back. Maybe while in. we
1: wait for Brian to rejoin, we can, we can tie a bit into our next question for everyone. And then when, when Brian comes back, we can segue to him. So the reason Jay and I really love the question about food beyond just hearing about all these amazing foods and being like, oh, I'm so hungry. <laughs> I wish I could make some of that right now is because food is such an incredible vehicle for cultural heritage, for upbringing, for some of these things that you really treasure from your upbringing and your family. And that transitions us a bit to our next question that we wanted to pose to our guests, which is talk to us a bit about your upbringing and what it was like growing up. Were facets of your Asian identity and culture really pertinent in your upbringing? And also, what were some of the values that really stood out from for you from, from growing up? Jen, or Jennifer, <laughs> I'm going to call on you for this one. Do you want to tell us about growing up in Chicago? Sure. I'm happy to, but Brian's back. Should we let
3: him talk and see if he...
4: Okay, is this any better?
3: Yes, he's back. Okay, great. Sorry
4: about that. Um, So yes, mine was, I I grew up uh, first generation, born and raised in the US. My parents are both Indian. And after about 10 years of straight Indian food, my brother and I revolted against my parents. And our favorite dish became uh, spaghetti and meatballs with Kraft Parmesan cheese. And that's, I feel like we had that probably like every day or every week. Uh, after our our teenage years. So uh, Jen, I'll throw throw it back over to you.
1: That's
3: awesome. That was not the answer I expected, Brian. (laughs) Uh, So um, Asian identity and culture was definitely part of my upbringing, but I would say growing up, it was very compartmentalized. And what what I mean by that is I grew up in the eighties in a very homogenous suburb of Chicago. Um, So like I went to a big public high school, there was like 500 kids in my class of which there were maybe, like, five Asians out of, like, 500. So, like, we really stood out. Um, so, like, like when I was in school or with my friends, I would say my Asian identity more faded to the background, or, like, it was more about me trying to fit in, honestly, when I was younger and blending in. But even then, um, my parents raised me with pretty traditional Asian values, like, a lot of importance in my household on education, hard work, um, the importance of family. And so like that was always there. And then on the weekends, Asian community and culture was a big part of our activity. So I was um, honestly forced to go to Chinese school on Saturday mornings to learn Mandarin. Um, I enjoyed in the summer going, so I'm Taiwanese. So they would send me to this like, um very like fun Taiwanese American kids summer camps every summer so like you know you would spend like six weeks on a college campus with Taiwanese American kids from all over the country you can imagine what that was like like you know no parents um and then also just socializing with like a tight close-knit group of Taiwanese friends and family because there's a big Taiwanese American community in Chicago so it was part of my identity and values but it was very compartmentalized. Contrast that to in my adult life, um, I just feel like I finally managed to integrate my identity just more seamlessly into like what I do. And I, I don't feel like it has to be so, so compartmentalized, which is actually much nicer. And, and um, you know, my, my immediate family is, is blended. Like I'm Tony's, my husband, um, his family's like fourth generation Oklahoman. Like we're very different, but, um, but like it's very blended and it's one.
0: I love that, Jen. And, and one thing that we hear a lot on the podcast as well is, is the exact same idea that you just shared, um, where your upbringing, it was something that you wanted to compartmentalize. And now, um, as you've kind of moved forward in your life and move forward in your career, maybe to start your own family yourself is something that you actually want to bring to the forefront and um, talk about a lot and reflect on a lot. Um, Connie, for you, I'm, I'm curious, was Asian identity something that would be spoken about a lot at home or was is, was it also something like Jen um, that was something, I guess, like later in your career you started to think about or later in your life you started to think about?
2: Yeah, I think I, I had a different experience from Jen because I grew up in Southern California and I grew up a lot, around a lot of Asian Americans. Um, so I think my high school was probably... Asian American and so I was surrounded by people who looked like me and the diversity of the Asian American experience so children of immigrants, immigrants, third generation Japanese Americans so I I felt. I, I never felt like I didn't belong because there were always people who, were, who looked like me. Um, and I also don't think I did a lot of introspection about Asian American identity until I went to college because I never felt that sense of not belonging. Um, but growing up, like my, um, my dad is a refugee from Vietnam. Uh, he did not have an opportunity to complete his education. So that was a, that was a huge value for me and, and my brothers as we were growing up is uh, it was always education first. My parents didn't allow me to do any tours around the house because they were so focused on academics. I think that might be a common experience among many Asian-Americans. My mom uh, is from Hong Kong. She was the one of her six siblings to come to the U.S. and actually complete her college education. Um, So she was the classic tiger mom, I would say. Like she really, she made sure that I went to Chinese school, that I played the piano, that I was in athletics, um, but I think more so than anything because she was the first of her siblings to come to the U.S., she felt financially responsible for her family um, and helped all of her siblings immigrate to the U.S. So family and financial stability were also values that were really instilled in me as, as a child and that has. Uh, That has been really important to me now that I have my own family, Uh, being in an environment where there is financial stability, where my kids can have a quality education, and living near family has been really, really important. Thanks so much for sharing that, Connie.
1: And I want to juxtapose your experience of growing up in LA around a lot of Asian Americans and feeling like you belong in that space with Brian's experience of growing up in Michigan as one of the few Asian Americans there. Brian, I'll toss it
4: over to you. Yeah, it, it definitely is a contrast. Um, I was probably like the only Asian American in my class. And I, it's, it's interesting because my parents scanned all my yearbooks from growing up. And so I could see, uh, you know, I was the only brown kid in the class and It's interesting because I almost didn't really appreciate it when I was growing up because my parents, who were new to the country, were trying to fit in themselves. They were trying to learn English. And so as an example, I never learned to speak the native language. It's a dialect of Marathi in in India because my parents were practicing their English with my brother and me. So uh, and, and, you know, I think they thought, okay, if we're going to be in the U.S., Brian and Justin, my brother, should learn English. They'll be more valuable than trying to learn the local language from back home. And so it was very much just trying to focus on like fitting in and, and, and getting by. Honestly, I was talking to my parents. I was inspired by Angie and Jay's podcast. And I did a podcast interview of my parents uh, this past weekend. They're visiting from Michigan. So they're here in the Bay Area. And you know, I asked them what it was like uh, for us growing up and they were, they were really just trying to get by. I mean, you know, my mom had a basic job at the hospital as a housekeeper, housekeeper that she did for 30 years. Uh, my dad had a basic job, entry-level $6 an hour job as a screen printer. And I you know, I asked them, like, how much money did you have when we were growing up? Uh, which is something I'd never asked them before. I'd never really even thought to, to try to learn that. But now as a new parent myself, I'm trying to contextualize the experience that my brother and I had. And- it was a couple thousand dollars. And I was like, geez, that's, you know, um, I think that, that's why I, I talked about kind of just getting by and surviving uh, and and just trying to do the best that they could to show us their values by their actions of just working hard and doing whatever it takes to get by. I mean, kind of, kind of like Connie in terms of the story of her, her parents, just like, you know, you do whatever it takes and you demonstrate that work ethic and it rubs off on on us as as the kids. And so that's how my brother and I learned just by watching them. It was never a conversation about work ethic or hard work or doing the right thing, but it was just by seeing them in action. That's how we learned the values and just tried to absorb them ourselves. Brian, thank you for sharing that. also can we
0: all take away interviewing our parents um I, I think i think that would be so fun um i was talking to my my uh, my nani who's my grandma on my mom's side about um ha- like ho- like doing literally the exact same interview process that Angie and I do with all of our guests just with my grandma um and i'll like send her the questions beforehand and you know, we'll we'll go into like a podcast recording because i think that would be just such a, such a beautiful um experience and, and piece of content to hold on for the rest of our lives um but i, I love i love that point um Transitioning a little bit towards, uh, you know, st- starting starting careers, um, going through unique career paths, um, Jen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a, a question, um, and it's going to be a fun follow-up from um, our own episode. Um, one of the pieces of advice uh, that you gave um, to us, to Angie and I, and also just to the broader audience was to Uh, pick, you know, when you're early in your career to pick companies that are really reputable companies and are on and like have good values and, you know, have a good business trajectory, et cetera, but also companies that like to have fun. Um, so you <laughs> you chose a company um, that you, that you could have a lot of fun in and, and that was MTV um, and, and I'm curious uh, I, I would love to hear the story um, if you can about how you got to MTV why you did it um, and also if you can highlight maybe the story that you were able to share with us about uh, mr. mr. Buster rhymes
3: <laughs> happy happy to work Buster rhymes into my answer um, let's see so um... You know how did I end up at MTV and by the way that was my first business development job sometimes people ask me how I got into business development my first business development job was actually that was the function I joined at MTV but um you know when I graduated from college like many others I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my career so the first couple of years, I indexed super highly on like learning and maybe more like prestige, like branding companies that were more traditional career track. I went to an undergraduate business program, so I joined Wall Street, I became an high banking analyst, um, and then, then I, after that I did consulting for a couple of years, and after honestly five years of like like grinding it out in banking and consulting, you know, where I learned a ton, but I was like tired, and also I was like, I don't think I'm having enough fun in my work. Um, I did an about face, and I was like, you know what? My next job, I don't know how long I'm going to do it. I'm going to index super high on like passion and interest and like fun, honestly. And so, you know, I'm a kid of like, as I mentioned that I grew up in the 80s and 90s I grew up watching MTV and that was like my music discovery I was really into music. And I was like, I was living in New York City and I was like, like what companies headquartered here that I just think would be really fun to work for great MTV's is the world headquarters is here. I want to work there. And so um, you know, I was also very passionate and kind of obsessed with the entertainment and media industry. Like I, I wanted to try it. So miraculously, honestly, I got very lucky. I networked my way into, they, they were looking for a beauty person. And as somebody with like a business background, there's not too many jobs you can get in an entertainment company. If you don't want to be like totally back office, like doing accounting or finance, which is a perfectly good job, but I wanted part of why I wanted to work there was I wanted to work around creative people and see what the entertainment industry was like. So that's how I ended up there. And I ended up spending about two years there before going to business school. And it was as fun as I thought it was going to be. So it totally lived up to the building. It is a crazy place to work or it was back then. I did learn a lot, not always the things I thought I was going to learn, but I did learn a lot. And I'm super glad um, I, I did it. Um, it wasn't the easiest place to work, um, you know, at the junior levels, like entertainment companies, you don't make a lot of money, but I felt like it was, it was an experience worth having.
0: And you got to follow it's up amazing. on the Buster Rhyme story really quick. Oh my God, <laughs> I,
3: after that lead up, I forgot, <laughs> yes. I forgot.
0: I'm sorry, I, I, I just- I
3: did, <laughs> I did deliver my promise to Jay. So like, um, this wasn't like an everyday occurrence, but part of the quote perks is you, you do get to meet the talent because The office building is the same building where the talent comes in to do interviews and radio shows. And my little office was on the same floor as the radio studio. So what that meant is lots of people would come in. And one day I was like typing away, probably working on some like Word doc. And I felt like somebody standing behind me, you know, you can kind of feel it when somebody's standing over your shoulder before you see it. And so I turn around and Buster Rhymes is standing over my shoulder. And this was like nine, you know, this is 1999, 2000. So this is like the version of Buster with the crazy hair um and he had gotten lost on his way to the radio studio and he was like excuse me can you help me can you take me to the radio studio so and I was like yes buster I'd be happy to and so um like you know little interactions like that were like the, the fun perks for like the people on the business side like me other than that we were not allowed to talk to the talent so that's amazing
1: I would have been so starstruck just be like
3: oh I be very <laughs> starstruck I did not have very like I I had no
1: words. (laughs) Yeah, I would just like take the long route around the office. I can can (laughs) talk to him for a bit longer. (laughs) That's awesome, Jen. Thanks for sharing that. Transitioning over to Connie and Brian. So it's it's interesting and undercurrent that I'm hearing from both of you here is this idea of financial security, right? And how important that is for you, given your upbringing. And I really want to double click on this, and I hate the business jargon, but I couldn't think of a better phrase there, of how how this idea ties into the career paths that you've chosen and the various steps that you've taken. For example, Connie, we know that you started off studying education. You worked in social impact. You've worked in nonprofits, and you then transitioned into your role at LinkedIn. I'd love to hear about that journey and how you thought about this undercurrent through those choices. And Brian, we know that you... Gave up going back to business school and very great options at the table to pursue this ambiguous, back then, at least very uncertain, chief of staff role. So I'd love for you both to share stories on that front, too.
2: Yeah, I I just have to say, I have this very vivid memory of Brian and I at a Boys and Girls Club event, and he was about to make this decision to be Jeff's chief of staff. And uh, he had such clarity of conviction of why he wanted to do that instead of business school. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say now and whether the answer is still the same after so many years. Um, But uh, uh, thank you for that, Lita and Angie. I think uh, the financial stability uh, piece has been, I think a driving force in my career uh, this the entire time. And part of it is like, I saw my dad who was a refugee, never was able to complete even high school. Um, he ended up landing a job through his network and worked at a factory in a blue collar job for about 25 years. And when the company was acquired, he was one of the first people that let go. And the people that were put in place of him were those who had high school degrees and college degrees. And then I saw my mother who was the first in her family to graduate from college. She was able to get jobs at Coca-Cola. For some reason, she worked at a lot of soft drink companies. <laughs> so she worked at Coca-Cola, she worked at Pepsi, um, she worked in uh, the the, the, fi- the finance departments of those companies. Um, and eventually she hit the bamboo ceiling, but because she spoke English really well and because she had a college education, it was quite easy. I mean quite easy. I'm sure it wasn't that easy, but it was easier for her to start her own business and to build it up from scratch than it was for someone like my dad who didn't speak English as well and didn't have a a high school college education. And so that's where my passion of an education really stemmed from and why in the beginning of my career, I thought that education was a space where I could really make the most difference for people as they are looking for Opportunity and economic security, and so I spent a, a a good portion of my early, actually starting in high school, I used to tutor at Kumon. I don't know if any of you any of you ever attended Kumon, but that was one of my first paying jobs. It's a miserable experience, both for the teachers and the kids. I will admit, um, and their branding clearly shows it because they have that really sad face in the oh. Anyway, uh, that I, I spent a lot of time doing at. Uh, teaching and tutoring and investing in education. And I actually got my master's degree in education, thinking that I wanted to be a professor um, and to get my PhD to get a, to be a professor so I could really scale the impact that was I was having on, on students. Um, and as I was in my master's program, uh, w- within the first three months, I realized that in order for me to be a professor, I would have to really, really focus in on one very specific topic. and I didn't want to really do that. I wanted to have broader impact. And I think that's when I realized that, I I think scaling impact was what then grounded me in every career decision that I've made since then, which is what are opportunities that allow me to take what I know and the foundations I've built and have bigger and bigger impact as I go. And So after my master's program, I worked in a nonprofit space. Uh, where I was working with universities and helping college students connect with uh, kindergarten students. So I was able to have a national impact. Um, then worked at Yahoo in the social impact space where we were able to leverage the power of Yahoo at the time. It was one of the top destinations on the web, imagine that. and uh, We were able to leverage the global scale of Yahoo to, uh, to create positive change in the world. Um, and then now working at LinkedIn, uh, I. I don't think if you had ever asked me like five years ago at any point in my career, if you had asked me what I would be doing in the next five years, I never would have been able to tell you <laughs> or answer that question. Uh, but now I feel like I'm at this stage of my career where I'm having the most impact I've ever had in my career of being able to tell stories and put them out into the world that impact tens of millions of people on an everyday basis is is I think the biggest impact that I couldn't have ma- couldn't have imagined when I was sitting in that room in my master's uh, degree <laughs> period of my life.
4: I'm happy to piggy piggyback off of that. And by the way, Connie is a Kumon tutor being miserable. I've never seen Connie miserable in my life, so I'm just curious. I, that image of Connie just being upset, I, I'm very interested in seeing if there's any marketing material. You me. haven't
2: you haven't met Con- high school Connie.
4: High school Connie. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> kidding.
2: I was the same person.
4: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's what I figured. Okay, so. Um, you know, it's, it's actually interesting as Connie was talking, there's a lot of uh, similarities there. And, and Angie, to go back to your question, like when I was earlier in my career, I would think a lot about the financial impl- implications of the decisions that I was making, just in the same way that, you know, growing up, I, we, we thought about what we had and what we didn't have in terms of our upbringing. And so it was very much top of mind. I started my career in consulting. Jen survived five years in consulting and banking. I survived less than two so uh, she clearly has more uh, in it than, than I do in terms of kind of uh, ability to survive that kind of environment. It is, it is pretty uh, fast paced, just a lot of travel and a lot of, lot, lot of long hours. But after two years or so at McKinsey in Los Angeles, I joined LinkedIn and the business operations team. And so, uh, and I think some, some folks on here, I think are in the biz ops team, I, I think I saw. And so I was doing kind of internal strategy analytics, uh, growth projects, uh, working with different executives and, and folks around the business. And that's when I was ready to go to business school after about a year and a half uh, to, to what Andrew referred to earlier, I'd gotten to Stanford, I paid my deposit, planned out the next two years of my life at the GSB just down the street. And uh, you know it was my dream to get an MBA. And that's when uh, Jeff, Jeff Wiener gave me this opportunity to work with him as his chief of staff, and you know, I, I remember Connie talks about the clarity that I had. You know, the, the, it it was kind of like this fork where I had planned in my mind this path that I would go down with the MBA, and then. You know, I was the type of person who like, planned out my life in an entire PowerPoint presentation of like what I was gonna do and what jobs I was gonna have all the way up through like, my 30s and the family and all that. And so this was a detour from that path that was pretty well you know, in terms of consulting and maybe a tech job and then the MBA and then you know, where, where it goes from there. So this, this was a detour working with Jeff as chief of staff, but I realized th- this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I couldn't pass this up because I could always go to business school down the road, but getting a chance to work with Jeff uh, once in a lifetime. And, you know, the, one of the frameworks that I used to make the decision was Jeff Bezos's regret minimization framework, which is essentially to say when you, whenever you have a difficult decision, try to fast forward to when you're 80 years old and you're reflecting back, what, what would you have regretted more? And using that as a litmus test, and I realized like, if I had said no to working as the chief of staff at LinkedIn back in 2014, I probably would have regretted what that could have become. You know, knowing that business school could have been an option for me down the road. And so that's how I was able to make that decision is realizing it's truly a special opportunity. And when Jeff and I talked about it, we said it would be an 18 month thing, six months to learn it, six months to do it, and six months to find and train a replacement. Here we are seven years later. So I'm, I'm very glad I made that decision because it's just been an incredibly transformative experience uh, in, a, in a number of different dimensions for me. So I'm very grateful that he took that chance uh, on me and that he invested in that partnership and we we made it what it is today. Hey,
3: Angie, this is such a good topic if I could just um add one thing, like, you know, the question you asked about how we think about financial implications of our career choices, and I loved hearing Brian and Connie's stories, and I think often, like, as, um, you know, as an Asian person, especially if your parents were immigrants, like, which mine were, and it sounds like the other panels were, like, there's this premium put on security and stability, because your parents immigrated, and they had to struggle, and so, like, you're, whether it's implicit or explicit, like, it's very important for like you to build financial stability and sometimes that is at odds with like taking risk or following your passion or doing something entrepreneurial and that is like a constant. um, tension or like decision you have to make, and so, for me it wasn't like very stark choices but. Like when I chose to work for MTV for two years, like I had to think about if I could afford to pay my rent in New York. And then later on after business school, instead of going to like Goldman Sachs or whatever, I worked for um, a couple like no name startups. uh, And like one of them exited, worked out, the other one totally didn't. But like when you're faced with those choices, like I love like Brian your regret minimization framework because like you almost have to figure out like how to make those choices because the natural path of like your upbringing maybe won't lead you there. Um, And so for me it was like at certain points in my career I really tried hard to maximize for learning and interest and passion. Like those are two of my values. And so like people would tell me like if you optimize for this thing and find success, like the money will come. And I found that mostly to be true, not always, not every time, but like I've had to kind of fight against that because like the easiest thing and the most comfortable thing honestly for me to do was just to chase the job with the most financial security. It was really hard for me to go against that when I did.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting uh, you bring that up Jen because um, I, I still remember, and uh, this will not be, well, shared with my mother, but uh, my mom was very, very explicit with me after I graduated from college that she wanted me to find a financially stable job. And I ended up working in an educational center. It was not a very lucrative, it was not a very lucrative position. And we had screaming matches, particularly because I did not, (laughs) I moved home because I didn't get paid very much. And we had screaming matches about it where my mom was like, you know, I moved here, I did all of this to help everybody in the family and you're gonna go help other people? Like you should be helping our family. <laughs> like you should be making money and bringing it back to the family. Um, so I, I totally hear you, Jen, that it's not it's not an easy easy decision to go off, off course. I will say that my mom is very proud of me for now working for Microsoft and for LinkedIn. <laughs> you <laughs> no, like my, my my dad
3: too like my mom and dad too it's like oh i've heard of that i've heard of microsoft yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah we can pronounce it we've heard of it my friends know what it is um so they are they are incredibly proud but um it took a it took a while and a windy career path to get here and i didn't and i don't think i got here because my parents wanted me to it was following the interest and the in the passion
0: oh, thank you for all sh- thank you for sharing this is a the, the topic of financial security and the financial implications around your career decisions and your life decisions are something that I, I know a lot of people think of and I, I think about a lot as well and, and even if um, the pressure from your parents isn't explicit. Um, it's, it's still somewhat implicitly there if you are, at least for myself like a second generation um, immigrant and like I see I've seen and I currently see my parents struggling financially and so for for me like even if they're not putting like the explicit pressure of like you need to go do this you need to go do that it's still kind of at the back of my mind um and I think that's like an interesting maturation of um Asian American identity related to finances and related to like explicit versus implicit, implicit pressure that our parents may put on us for like career choices even if it is like getting to a point in society where they're not like saying you need to go become a doctor lawyer or whatever. Um, There's still like parts of it that are in the back of your mind and kind of guide your decision making. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for opening up and um, talking about this topic. It's such an important one. Um, I know, I know we're kind of ending our time. Unfortunately, it's already been like, like 45 minutes of an awesome conversation. Um, wanted to make a quick plug. If anybody wants to ask any questions, um, we're going to open it up right after this question. Um, so please put them in the chat and then we can kind of um, go from there. So please, please ask your questions based on anything that um, our Brian, Connie, and Jen had has shared, have shared today. Um, our last question, I just wanted to like, when we talked about this, it's been an undercurrent of our entire conversation, but um, specifically related to how um, your Asian American identity has supported you and helped you in your career so far. Um, Jen, I want to start with you. And again, this is something that we've spoken about in the past before um, in our own conversations, but also in, in the podcast um, was like what it's like being at a really senior level position, being a, like a tough negotiator, um, and how people, you know, partners or, or companies that you speak with uh, may not expect you um, to be like that tough negotiator. Um, but but I know you've you've spoken about how bringing up your own like Asian American identity has actually supported you with that. Um, would love if you could if you could touch on that, and then we can kind of liaison to Brian and Connie afterwards.
3: Sure, I'll start with a more general point, and then maybe go to the specific um, me, me being a negotiator since I do business. Development development um, as a function, but like, I would just say at a higher level, being other of any kind helps you be more empathetic. And like, what I mean by that is like growing up in the eighties and nineties in the very white suburbs of the Midwest, like I was very acutely aware of being different and other, and just had to to, like, accept the fact very early on that no matter how I tried, like I was never going to completely blend in. And so know a little bit later being a woman of color in investment banking or consulting where i you know my clients were mostly like um exacts like white men um you know like i was always like uh other and so i think building that that has helped me i think be more empathetic as like a people manager when later in my career i became a people manager so like i try to pay very attention a lot of attention to in my team building a very inclusive team culture like I think the buzzword right now is psychological safety but like I want people on my team to be exactly who they are at work because you can't do your best work otherwise and then um, I try also to coach and mentor those who want to be coached or mentored who are trying to find their way and like adjust to in this case like the LinkedIn culture or like you know when I was in consulting or whatever like we're, you know, helping people kind of adjust to that culture because I'm just acutely aware of what it's like to like be different. And so I think that helps anybody honestly be a better leader on the, on the more specific point um, that Jay brought up. So like I'm in business development, we negotiate with partners um, and like oftentimes you'll get into like deal negotiations and, you know, being a small Asian woman and which is kind of unusual in tech BD, um, at first, you're like, oh, that's not going to be much of an advantage. And you know, I've had many uh, negotiations or deal negotiations where like, you, you, I'm usually negotiating against somebody who doesn't look like me. Um, but, you know, where it's worked in my favor is I think people underestimate me sometimes because I'm a small Asian woman. And so when I am a tough negotiator, I'm nice about it. I'm not like a jerk about it. It's like surprising to them. And um, it, it's almost like a secret weapon where they don't realize how hard you're negotiating on behalf of your company and they underestimate you. So that that is actually sometimes worked out in my favor.
2: Connie, I'll toss it over to you. Yeah, I I love I love that, Jen, that you're underestimated for being a small Asian woman. I have had that same experience <laughs> in my in my career. And I I totally resonate, Jen, with your uh, anecdote of, you know, being, being an other and really having to learn empathy. Um, I I think I didn't have that experience as much until I entered uh, the sort of work phase of my life. So uh, being in corporate America was probably the first time in my life that I was surrounded by people who didn't look like me because I grew up in LA I was drinking boba with my Asian-American friends on the regular. Um, And when I entered corporate America, people didn't know what boba was. It was shocking. Um, And uh, I I think that really made me uh, so much of a sponge and a learner and really curious about this new world that I was trying to fit into, that I was trying to succeed in. Um, And I... Uh, just attached myself to leaders who uh, were inspiring and authentic and led in ways that I wanted to lead and just learn from them and follow them. So I I talk a lot about my uh, relationship with Meg Garlinghouse, who's at LinkedIn, been at LinkedIn for the past decade. I worked for her for five years when I was at Yahoo. um, And she's one of the uh, most visionary authentic leaders that I've had the experience, uh, the privilege of working with and for. um, And she's one of those people who really taught me, like, what does it mean to thrive in, in this corporate space? Um, and so I think being another helped me become more of a learner. I think the the other the other thing that I think for, for my Asian American background has helped me with and probably more the immigrant having immigrant parents has helped me with is the work ethic uh, like one just working harder than anybody else And then two probably one of the most I think underestimated um, underestimated skills of of Anybody is of employees is like being able to manage your managers really well. And I think as Asian Americans, like we, I mean, I grew up in a pretty hierarchical, respect your elders type of culture. Um, and there is this delicate balance of like respecting your elders and respecting your bosses, but also being able to challenging, challenge them and make them look good at the same time. I think there's something about my culture and the experience that I bring in that helps me manage my managers really well um, for, the, for that reason. So uh, just a couple, couple observations, hand it to Brian.
4: I love that. Uh, Connie, thank you. Um, I need to learn how to manage my manager better. So I'm gonna come to come to you for some tips on that. Oh,
2: I think you might be able to teach the course on that one.
4: <laughs> uh, I'm still learning every day. So uh, I wanna underscore uh, one element from, from Jen and one from Connie, and then I'll add on a third. The one that I heard from from Jen is really around awareness. And, you know, I remember growing up just trying to be very aware of what's going on around me because I'm trying to learn about this world. It's a new world. And so that sense of being aware and paying attention and noticing what's going on, like deeply noticing and like reading the room. I think it served me very well in my career because I'm able to spot things that I think other people don't because they're not as in tune with what's really happening. So like that's one. The second thing is what I think Connie mentioned, which is around curiosity and just having this this innate desire to keep learning and growing as a person. I mean, it's nonstop, this journey of discovering who I am and what's actually, what matters in the world. And so I've tried to apply that curiosity since I was a kid, but also in in the business world, I think it really helps because in my role as chief of staff, I don't have all the answers, but I've got to be curious to ask the right questions. And to try to surface that for for the company. And then the third that I would add on for me is, and it's similar to the work ethic that Connie mentioned, but to me, it's resilience, which is whenever I have a bad day and, and there are plenty of them, and I've made a lot of mistakes in my role, and those are very painful mistakes. But this sense of resilience comes back to me because I always think back to my parents and like all the sacrifices they've made all the challenges they've had in their careers, in their lives. I mean, saying goodbye to their families and leaving them in, behind in India. And it gives me perspective to remind myself, it's really not that bad when I make a mistake or you know if I don't do the right thing, I'm learning, uh, I'm on this journey, look at what my parents have done. And it's a good reminder for me to have that sense of resilience, that sense of grit to keep going and to keep growing because I just know you know they've provided this opportunity for me for my family now, and so the, the best thing I can do is just you know uh, make the most of that. So that's what I try to do in my career and in my life. Fantastic, um, thank you for all sharing.
0: Awesome, I just wanted to make sure there weren't any questions. If there aren't any questions, we can um, ask one more question. The way that we like to end our podcast is by asking. Uh, what is something that you've done in your career that you would either recommend to others to do or something that you did really well or something that you wish you did a little bit more? Um, I'm curious if you guys would like to share that um, as we wrap up here, if there's anything else that we've missed um, related to Asian American identity, but also just related to general uh, personal and career advice. Um, Anybody feel compelled to to kick us off?
3: Um, I think when I was very early in my career, right out of school, um, I think I optimized much more for prestige or what was expected of me, um, like like outward uh, markers of success. And I'm not knocking those things, like some of those things are very important and like you don't wanna ignore them. Um, but like ultimately that left me kind of unsatisfied. Like it felt like I was working really hard and maybe i promoted, but like something was missing. Um, And I made a couple of mistakes along the way when I started joining startups or various companies where I also didn't pay close enough attention to the values and the culture of the company. So like how I corrected for both of those is like prestige is one thing, but like I I learned over time after making some bad choices to really pay close attention to the culture and the value of the companies and also like the quality of the people in the company and also the leaders of the company. Cause like I joined some like really fun companies, but like ultimately the values of the leaders were so diametrically opposed to mine. It was like this cognitive distance every day at work. And like, life is too short. You, wanna, you don't want to, you don't need to live with that. So um, like, I mean, there's a reason I stayed at LinkedIn almost 10 years. Like it's a very special place and where I feel like the culture and the values like really resonate with me. So that's one thing I wish I had learned a little bit earlier.
2: Um, so I, I think I think the best thing that I've done for for my career is working with a career coach, and I think a lot of us at LinkedIn have the benefit of through Lyra finding a career coach. And I uh, when I started working with my career coach, just found it so helpful to have somebody who was an objective observer of the work that I was doing. And the I think the biggest thing that she helped me see was. I think you know early in my career when particularly when I joined corporate tech like it was it was constantly about like what is the next promotion what is the bigger job how do I climb the corporate ladder and I got to this space where I was like you know I'm actually pretty happy where what with what I'm doing and where I am And the only reason I feel like I have to keep climbing is because those are expectations that are put upon me outside of myself. And so that was the the work that I did with my career. One of of the many pieces of work that I did with my my career coach is really just getting clear on my values, getting clear on my priorities and investing in those spaces and interestingly enough like that was probably two promotions ago like these are not promotions i was gunning for it was really when i was invested in the my values and my priorities at the time and doing what i uh, personally felt like was what would drive me forward and help me grow and learn and that ended up becoming you know the promotions that i that i got and so um working with a career coach highly highly recommended
4: I would plus one uh, both those points, which is, I, I also worked with a Lyra coach uh, on, on kind of my uh, sense of purpose and mission and values. And so I highly recommend that. And I also, to, to Jen's point, had that experience of trying to shift my orientation of myself from one of like an extrinsic motivation to more of like intrinsic motivation. And so like I went through that journey as well, and it, it took me a while to get there. And once I got there, I felt much more comfortable in my own skin. The, the third thing that I would add is to, to me, you know, I think Jen mentioned life is short and I think we've, we've learned that over the last you know year and change. And so one of the things for me is optimizing for the people I work with. And, and just, you know, for, for me, it came down to three things. One, do I respect the person you know, I work with? Do I trust them? And am I learning from them? And if the answer is yes to all of those, then I try to go all in and build that relationship and see where it takes me. And I mean, I've had the good fortune of working with Jeff now for seven years, but it's not just Jeff, it's a lot of the folks I've worked with in my career. And I try to invest in those relationships and just play the long game. And, they, and for those of you who are maybe earlier in your career, you don't need to be working with the CEO to invest in those relationships because the people you're working with today are gonna to go on and do great things just as you are. And so my advice would be just to play the long game with the people you really respect, the people you trust and the people you're learning from every day.
1: Thank you all so much for sharing that. We're coming right up on time. So we're gonna wrap up if no other questions from the audience. But I wanna thank you all again, Brian, Jen and Connie for joining us today. This was such an incredible conversation and thank you all so much for, for joining Jay and I. You know, Honestly, part of why this conversation is really important for us is that sometimes it feels like there's a really small range of motion, right? For what Asian Americans can be and should be especially in the workplace. So thank you for coming on, sharing your story and helping us, I I have to make a pun out of this, but look across the lines, right, to expand the boundaries of what that range of motion looks like. You know, thank you for being so open through stories, just sharing your your experiences and your wisdom and underscoring like a core premise of what's important to us at Across the Lines, which is that personal and professional are really inextricable. And I think this was such an amazing way to celebrate AAPI joy, excellence, just overall amazingness of our community. So thank you so, so much again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian-American identity, Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it.
0: And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.